Are we doing this? Really? Wait for it. Are we doing this? Wait for it. Ow! What the fuck? WTF. And it's also, eh, what the fuck? What's wrong with me? It's time for WTF. What the fuck? With Mark Marin. Okay, let's do this, what the fuckers. How are you? What the fuck, buddies? What the fucking ears? And thanks to a gentleman, somebody thought, what the fuck, Nick's? How did we not think of what the fuck nicks? I like what the fuck nicks. All right, maybe I'll add it to the uh, to the list. I don't know. Couple of things right out of the gate. Welcome to the show. Thank you, San Francisco. Thank you. The Purple Onion shows were amazing. I had a great time. If you came out, I, I got to tell you, they were some of the best shows that I I've, I've ever done. I don't know if the, it was that place. It was the history of that place. I had great openers. I had Moshe Kasher. Had Kyle Kinane. Uh, Stephen Pearl on Wednesday night, but they were just fantastic shows. I want to thank all of you, uh, what the fuckers, for coming down, uh, bringing me cupcakes, bringing me comic books, telling me stories. Had one guy at the Purple Onion told me a story that just blew my mind. Uh, this dude, uh, his name escapes me, but he maybe he doesn't want it on the air. I believe it was uh, Brian. He comes up to me and he says that when he was 12 years old, he was watching me on Comedy Central on the A-list. That was a weird one because I remember that. I, I was wearing a borrowed jacket and the way, the way they structured that show was that the new guy went after the, uh, the headliner guy. So I had to follow Amazing Jonathan uh, who had just cut his arm off on stage. That was his closing trick. And I was backstage and they said, you know, we'll get you on as soon as we clean up the blood. I don't know if I've told you that story, but that's not the point of this story. The point of this story is Brian comes up to me. He said he saw me on that show and I'd done a joke about the second coming of Christ. Uh, I It was something along the lines of, uh, you know, if this were to happen today, uh, you know, would it be like, uh, you know, uh, the second coming world tour? The, the king of beers brings you the king of kings in a 50 state, 60 country global extravaganza. If you pop open an ice cold bud and get the blood of Christ, we'll send you and two of your friends to Jerusalem for the judgment day bash. Uh, and then there, there was something about a tractor pull and, uh, I, I can't quite remember the bit, but this guy remembered seeing that bit when he was 12 years old, memorizing it verbatim and then performing it at his church in rural Tennessee, thinking that it was an appropriate thing to do. And apparently his entire family was kicked out of the church. Of that they were kicked out of that church, and he said that it it blew his mind, that it it, it freed him from what could have been a life of uh, religious servitude to uh, to uh, insane Christianity, and he sort of thanked me for it. And I I of course said, well I I'm sorry that your family went went through that, but uh, I I think that's very flattering, and and I'm I'm glad I helped you out. Uh, apologize to your parents for me, would you? That being said, and thank you again for all the cupcakes. I know I've established a baked goods thing, and I certainly love them, and I eat them, and, and there's there's nothing more sad and more beautiful than me after a show alone in a hotel room shoving cupcakes into my mouth. And believe me, I'm grateful, but if I don't start going to the gym, we're going to have to figure out another thing to bring. I appreciate the cat toys as well, by the way. And and two different guys brought me the same uh, uh, comic not the same edition or the same uh, uh, book exactly, but the same character. So I, maybe I'm uh, exuding something. I, I should read it. I, I don't have it with me, but but uh, but thank you is what I'm saying. Now, let's get on to some business. This Thursday, May 21st, we're doing a live What the Fuck at the UCB Theater, the Upright Citizens Brigade Theater here in Los Angeles. You can go to ucbtheater.com. That's theater spelled with an R-E at the end. Go to the L.A. branch and get the reservations if you want. It's going to be a great show. I got Laura Keitlinger coming out. Have not seen her in years, but one of the great comedians. Uh, also, Moshe Kasher will be there, as well as Brendan Walsh and, of course, Jim Earl and Eddie Pepitone. That's uh, May 21st, this Friday, uh, at the UCB Theater in L.A. Now, I'm reaching out to Canada. Toronto people, people within the vicinity of Toronto, I will be at Yuck Yucks in Toronto, May 27th through 29th. You can go to yuckyucks.com for information on that. Love to see you up there. It's been a long time since I've been to Toronto. All right, that business out of the way. Let's get this out of the way. Pow! Oh my God, I just shit my pants. I got to take a break. Justcoffee.coop. Do it. Go to wtfpod.com. 
Go get some coffee. They're my sponsor. I got a freezer full of coffee. Now, the task at hand. This show, I got to put out a warning right now, uh, a super explicit warning. Uh, I love my guest, uh, Jim Norton. He's one of the true uh, authentic characters in stand-up comedy. Great comic, but truly a unique guy. But he's unique in a very specific way. He's got a lot of facets, uh, and one of them is being uh, ridiculously filthy. Uh, That's his life. Uh, He has no shame about it. Uh, It's going to be a very exciting conversation for you. But what I want to tell you right now is that if you get a little weird around sex uh, or what you may call filth, uh, you might want to just get ready. If you're driving to, to work or you're driving your kids to school, I think that's the big one. If you got kids in the car, you might want to temper this one. You might want to you know, give it a listen first. That being said, I talked to Jim Norton after I did the ONA show recently in New York, and, and I've always loved Jim. Yeah, I remember when he came around in New York, but he's got a shamelessness and, uh, and an honesty about, uh, about sex that you don't find anywhere else. Now, look, I am not a pervy guy. Okay, you know, I'm not, it's not even perv. I, 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 that's the wrong way to look at it. I don't judge other people's sexuality. Uh, certainly, I'm curious about things that I may or may not act on. But generally, I'm not a fetish guy. I'm not that adventurous necessarily. I just like good, deep, soul-meshing sex that uh, could lead to crying afterwards. I, I like when you can't, when it's so good, you literally have to, uh, to you literally have to lay there after sex and, and hallucinate. I'm normal, right? Isn't that what everybody wants? I'm not saying that you can get it. But I've, I've never really been that much of an explorer. Sure, I've had a cock ring on. Yeah, I've done that. Yeah, I, I got no problem with that. They, they're kind of they're kind of nice. They're kind of fun. And it's been a long time. And it was a different time in my life. But uh, yeah, I've been known to put a cock ring on. Uh, but aside from that, uh, you know, no nothing too, too unusual. I, I do find that as I get older that there are things that I know that I like. But they're within the spectrum of relatively normal sex. I'm not a hooker guy. I, I never really, the couple of experiences I had with hookers were not good. Uh, they, they, were, they, were, they were not good at all, actually. I don't want to pay for sex. I know that on some level you're going to pay for it one way or the other. But I never, I just, I need, I need to feel like I, I know the person, that, the, the person, that I'm connected to the person. I, all right, I'm gonna, I guess I'm going to tell you. I will share my two prostitute stories that I'm, I'm not that ashamed of, but they didn't really pan out because I, all right, look at me, I'm getting embarrassed and you're going to listen to Jim Norton. He's just shameless. He's a shameless uh, shopper of prostitutes. Okay. Here's the, okay. Here's hooker story. Number one, I lived in Boston, Massachusetts. I was, uh, you know, all hopped up on coke and drinking and doing comedy every night. And I was living in a neighborhood where prostitutes used to hang out. Uh, yeah, not good prostitutes in terms of uh, the, the the quality of escort. But, you know, I, I think like $30, $40 prostitutes. And I would walk by them all the time. And, and it would just, it was just, it was fascinating to me, but I never found it that compelling. I remember one morning I got up to, to move my car at literally 7.30 in the morning to switch sides of the street. And this woman walks up to me. She looked a little fucked up. And she walks right up to me, grabs my crotch, and says, you want a date, baby? And I'm like, I, it's a little early. How, how about breakfast? You want breakfast? No, I, I, I. but you know what I'm saying. It was that kind of neighborhood. So what had happened one night, and I was seeing someone at the time, and I remember, you know, we were living there, and... uh and I, I, I guess, I, I guess I have shame about this, but so I'm, I'm coming home from a, a gig. You know, I just hung out with some guys. We did some coke, and uh, you know, I was drunk, and it was like three thirty in the morning, and and the woman I was living with, uh, you know, was out of town, and uh, oh god, am I going to tell this story? Okay, all right. So, so this woman first, a guy walks up to me. Uh, he says, "You want some coke? You looking for coke?" And I'm like, "No, I'm all good." And he's like, all right. And then uh, right behind him, this woman walks up and she's like, do you want a date? And I don't know what it was, I guess, because I was so consumed with self-hatred and so high. I'm like, yeah, okay, how much? And she's like, 30 bucks. And I'm like, okay, what, what, what do we do? 
Uh, she goes, well, where's your car? And I'm like, I live here, right here. And she's like, okay. So we walk up and it's like four flights and this poor woman was wheezing. She's like, how many more flights is it? And you know, I'm like, it's just right up here. And I, it, it felt very awkward because it's not my thing. And, and I was already immersed in, in some sort of horrible shame about it. And we get into the, into the house, into the apartment, and I'm like, well, what do we do? And, you know, I, I lay down on the bed. She says, well, you know, take your pants off. I'm like, okay, uh, great. And, uh, and then she starts, you know, going down on me, you know, giving me head. And it's, it's just ugly. And, I, and I'm like, ugh. you know, I had to give her the money first, of course. So I gave her the $30. And, and it's really not working for me. You know, there's just too much shame involved and too much weirdness and uh and i go i don't know we can you can you take your your shirt off or something she's like yeah it's 10 more bucks and i'm like okay you know here's ten dollars so she she takes her shirt off and i and and she puts my hand on her breast and then she says uh do you feel a lump in there and i'm like really you know she's going down on me she has my hand on her breast and she asks me if i feel a lump not hot. This is not this. I guess this is you get what you pay for because it definitely was not sexy. And I did feel a lump and it was horrifying. And I had this moment like, well, maybe she should she should be paying me. For the examination. I mean, I, I you know, she should definitely get a second opinion, which she said she was going to get. But it, it was awkward. And then in the middle of this, the phone rings and it's my girlfriend leaving a message. You know, and we hear it in the room. And I'm sitting there holding you know, what might be a cancerous breast with my cock in the mouth of a of a woman who I'm paying to have sex with on this bed. And all of a sudden, I hear, "Hi, honey," and I'm like, "I don't know why she's calling. Or it's so late. I, whatever." But it was just more. It was like God's fist <laughs> coming down on me. If there was one, the shame and the horror of it. But somehow, you know, it, I, I want this story to have an arc. I was able to finish, uh, you know, because once you set your mind to something. And, you know, she tells me, of course, that, like, she doesn't usually do this. You know, she works with computers. And uh, and then she looked at my, I had my dresser there, and she took my cigarettes, and she took uh, some condoms, and she took the change on my dresser, and and, uh, and I thanked her. And then I, I immediately went into uh, to the bathroom and, and scrubbed myself. Sorry, folks. I, I hope this doesn't make you think differently of me. That's hooker story number one. Oh, hooker story number two. Similar situation. And these are the only two hooker stories I have. And neither one of them good. This one a little more poetic. Again, I'm downtown Boston. Just got done at uh, Nick's Comedy uh, Stop. It's 2.33 in the morning, hung out after hours, partying with some dudes at this bar. So it's like coming up, you know, probably 3.30 in the morning. Um, down in the combat zone, driving home. Again, festering, high. See the streetwalker, this hooker. And I'm like, Ugh. all right, I'm going to try again. So I pull up. She gets in the car. Um, I'm coked out of my mind. Uh, and I'm like, uh, how much? And she's like, $30. So I'm dealing with a very high uh, level of uh, escort here and I go uh, 30 bucks what, what for a, a blowjob she's like yeah and I like okay where do where do we go and she goes just pull around the corner so I pull around the corner and she's like uh, you know I just want you to know I, I don't usually do this and I'm like okay and then she says yeah I'm actually I'm just in town for my father's funeral and for some reason that was so profound to me because it was disturbing, yet I felt like I was helping her get some closure. I like to help people. And I don't know why that I never forgot that. But, it, you know, it just seemed everything seemed to make sense in that moment, the situation. <laughs> so she was in town for her father's funeral. And I go, OK, what do I need to do? She goes, well, I guess you can pull your pants down. So I pull my pants down, uh, you know, in my underwear. She puts a condom on me and is about to start, you know, uh, you know going down on me. And then all of a sudden, out of nowhere... Bam! Spotlights everywhere. Just, you know, searchlights. And uh, three cop cars pull up right in front of me. And all of a sudden, there's cops all over the place. And, like, I freak out. And, you know, I I, I pull my pants up really quickly. Uh, 
And and uh, and she goes, Are you pants up? And I'm like, yeah, yeah. And and then she's like, don't worry, I'll deal with this. So she gets out of the car with my $30, which I'm not really worried about at the moment. And she starts doing this song and dance for the cops. Like, he helped me out. My boyfriend was beating me up. He picked me up. This whole big show. And I'm freaking out, you know, and, and I'm barely together. And then a cop comes up to the door of my car. He shines a, a light in my face. He goes, uh, what are you doing? And I go, I, I'm just, you know, I was, I, I was helping her out. She goes, where do you live? And I said, I live in Somerville. He's like, uh, you know, why don't you go there now? And I'm like, yes, yes, I mean, because, you know, I was coked up. I, it was a nightmare. I was drunk. And they used to put the names of Johns in the paper in Boston at that time. So I just had this moment where I'm like panicking. I'm sweating and, you know, the adrenaline's going and I'm driving down the expressway. And, and, I, and I'm so thankful and I'm just like losing it. And I look down. And I had not, like, I, you know, quickly pulled my pants up. I didn't really pull my underwear up. And I just looked down, and there's my, my sad, uh, unsatisfied, shamed little cock with just, a, you know, this horrible limp rubber hanging off it, almost like, uh, it was almost like nodding its head in shame at me, like, you know, like with a hat. And uh, quite honestly, that was the last of uh, my prostitute experiences many years ago. And I feel kind of weird telling you, to be honest with you. I feel a little weird. And that's the difference between me and Jim Norton. So I uh, am at uh, an undisclosed location in a large building in New York City with Jim Norton. Uh, who is uh, uh, one of my favorite comics and a comic I respect? Thank you, man. Yeah, absolutely. You know, I it's it's weird that I feel like we operate in two different worlds. Yeah, that you know, I come from regular stand up and you come from regular stand up, but there's this whole other world of comedy fans that I, I guess the, the thrust of the conversation you know I want to have is: Do your balls ever smell? Yeah, they do they a do, lot. Like, yeah. you, like you just wake up and you're like, "Where's that smell coming from?" No, in morning? the morning I'm okay, but it's after I fuck. I always refuse to shower after I fuck on principle. <laughs> <laughs> For how long? Uh, usually until the next night. You know. <laughs> now, now you see, there's part of me, you know, when I listen to what you do, and I, I appreciate what you do, and there, but there's part of me that I actually cringe a little bit, yeah, you know, only because like I couldn't say what you're saying, and there, there's some part of the uh, the male spirit that you speak for that I think is within all of us, but so few of us have the balls to uh, to actually put our balls out there like that. Did right. you just find that you had no choice? I don't know why. That's always made me funny to other comedians when I first started. Was uh, it seems like when I talked about myself. And my own sexual shortcomings or my own addictive behavior sexually. So, yeah, I think that's, uh, I, mean, I don't know why I'm so comfortable doing it, but I am. And then doing radio, it's like you got to fill time. So you just get comfortable saying anything. But your life, your sexual life is, uh, I guess it's hard to avoid judgment. But and do you feel that in terms of what you talk about that you, you have to defend ever, you know, your point of view? I've never had a problem with it because anybody truly questioning it is going to be fraudulent. Like any man that acts like, even if a man doesn't cheat or get hookers, any man that acts like he doesn't comprehend how another man could pay for a blowjob is a liar. And yeah. I know he's a liar and he knows he's a liar. So any type of criticism like that you have to meet, I think, with complete belligerence. Uh, when people are kind of apologetic about themselves, that's when they run into trouble. And people smell blood and they pounce. But I've never been apologetic about the things I talk Because that about. means they were ashamed of it. Yeah, and I'm not they... ashamed of it. Or if I am ashamed of it, I, I say I'm ashamed of it as part of me relaying it in stand-up. Well, I think that's a, that's why it works and that's why you're so genius about it is that, you know, you as a character and you providing your life, you know, about, uh, you know, uh, whether it's being pissed on or sure. having hookers or, or uh, you know, wh whatever your shortcomings are, what, what you like <laughs> vaginally. I call them strange. <laughs> is that you know you are sort of a you, you, just your whole being is sort of an underdog so like the, the sense is that you're, you're not saying everybody should do right. this you're saying like you know, this is my life yes as long as you're not like here's the thing i don't judge what other people do yeah uh so i, I won't accept the fact that they judge me it doesn't bother me if they do but if I hear about it, then I'm just, again, I'm belligerent about it, and I, and I tend to attack. As long as you're not a pedophile or an animal fucker, I don't care what you do. You know, you're gay, you're gay. If you like, you know, getting shit on, you like getting shit on. None of it matters to me. Right. Because only it's like the, the longer you live and the more you, like too many married women have shaken my hands 
and slip me their number when their husband was standing right there for me to believe in anybody's absolute morality. Like, I see what fucking pigs people really are, so I don't, I don't believe them when they act like they don't understand. And it. do you think most of that piggishness comes from their repression? That, like, in the sense that, like, what makes it worse for most guys is when, I, I think that's what you represent, is that you have an honesty that they can't have. If they're out fucking whores behind their wife's back, right, right. or fucking around on their wife, or gay behind their wife's back, the amount of shame and secrecy they're living in has got to be like a prison. Absolutely. So when they hear you talk, you know, at least they feel better for a second, but doesn't mean it's going to help their life at all. But at least they have the turn on of it being a secret. That is the fun part of it. <laughs> It's it's so much worse when everybody knows about it. It's it's like it's not as sexy. <clears throat> Excuse me, when everybody knows about it. There is something about sneaking around. For me, sex and sexual behavior is isolating. It, it's very, very like dark and alone. Like I don't like to cruise prostitutes with friends. I never enjoyed that. Like me and a bunch of buddies, and you, it was me alone being ritualistic. Uh-huh. And uh, I would only let <clears throat> let a hooker in the car if she approached from the right and leaned in the right side of my window. It was this weird seduction game I would play with myself. Oh, so you actually had they had to honor the uh, a fantasy before you even exchange money. Yeah, because it's, to me it's too easy. If they just get in and suck my dick. With money, then there's no seduction. Again, there's no push and pull. There's no, there's no tension. You know, I like to have a little bit of tension, a little build up to See, it. See, the way you even think about it, it's it, there's a sort of connoisseurship to it in that it's not just about getting the need met. There, you know, you you sort of have a a, a system that has to happen. Yeah. So if they approach from the wrong side, you go. Uh. It just doesn't do it for me, and it, it's. <laughs> It really, it also, it cuts down on the ritual. Like, the more the more little pieces of the ritual you put in, the longer the ritual can go on. So I could have wasted, I mean, I get up at five in the morning to, to do this, but like when I was off radio, I would literally start, I'd go out to the comedy cell, I'd be done by 11 or 12, and then cruise prostitutes until six in the morning listening to sports radio or whatever else I could listen to, which would take my mind off the fact that we'd been fired from radio. So it was this ritual that just kept the night going because once you come, it's over. Right. Okay. So, but so now you say that this is a problem. No, no, no. I mean, but do you acknowledge that you have a sex problem? Oh, it's a total addiction. I mean, in an addiction sense. Yes, absolutely. So in, in relation to that, it being a problem, is there any part of you outside of talking about it and, and making, you know, your pain and your life, uh, hilarious to, to people that are willing to laugh at it. Is that part? Is that a function of trying to get past it or, or shame or anything like that? I, I'm kind of afraid that without it, there's a part of me afraid of being healthy because I'm afraid I won't be funny or interesting without it. Uh, you know, it's like they talk with alcohol or drugs, the hole in the donut. Like, what am I going to be if I'm not that? So there's also a fear with it, but it also feels really good, man. It's really, sex is a really hard one. Like, I can't drink and I can't do drugs. It's an absolute but, you know, you can act out by being on the computer and you read an email that has one trigger word in it or one thing, and all of a sudden you're acting out, you know, it, without jerking off, well, that, without cruising. Yeah, I, well, I, I agree with that because I've had my own experience. Like, you know, I was originally brought to my attention that if you are a daily masturbator, perhaps, you know, that's an issue. Yeah. Whereas I thought that was like a meal. Yeah. That, <laughs> <laughs> you know, I I didn't like since I was eleven. There's not a day if I missed a day, I'm like I better you know catch up. There's something wrong, yeah. Right, but I'm also starting to realize now because I'm single and because uh, you know I've been sexual a lot more than you know with other people than I, I have with myself uh, in terms of of uh, you know is that the zone of sex. There's some weird zone that you yeah. enter where like and no matter how hard you try, it's almost like you know when you're sitting there, it's like like it's almost like a dream. You're like I'm going to remember this. I want to be present for this, and then all of a sudden you know it happens and you're like where the fuck were we yeah yeah and and that is like a real fucking high yeah it, it's half the times I'm, I'm acting out i'm actually doing it for the memory to jerk off to it's a really weird thing like there's times where i actually miss the activity because i'm just getting through it so i can jerk off thinking about the memory of it it's a really i'm more addicted to masturbating i think than i am to actual intercourse i'm well, more addicted to the ritual than the actual coming yeah have you have there been moments where you uh where you actually got out of a situation and said, holy shit, what the fuck did I just do? Yeah, I remember one time I went to see a prostitute on 2nd Avenue in the 80s. Yeah. And um, it was it really shook me. I walked into her place, and it was an abandoned apartment. And I looked into the bathroom. This is probably five years ago. And there's, uh, a, a, there's dirty water in the tub, and there was fruit flies and, like, g- garbage, like, just th- strewn about in the place like an old railroad apartment it was dark pitch black and she was holding a screwdriver and I gave her $300 and she went to the door I don't know if she had somebody outside that she gave the money to but then she sat down with the screwdriver and I've never felt this acting out. I just felt like something very very bad is about to happen something uh something really 
frightening is about to happen. I sensed that there was something else in the room. Uh, I was going to be hurt badly. And I just, I just actually said, look, I'm sick. I have to leave. And I let her keep the 300. And I, I was shaking when I left. And I don't know why. It's like we have instincts. We have feelings. Oh, no. Yeah. I, you I know saw it. Colin that night. And I was like, something really fucking bad just happened. And uh, it, it, th- it really threw me as to what danger I was putting myself in. Well, I think that's uh, the liability. Same with drugs. After, you know, after a certain point with drugs and drinking, it's not the drugs and drinking that may hurt you. It's a situation you're going to end up in. Yes. And, and I think that with prostitution, it's the same thing. Yeah, you're going to have, uh, oh yeah, I've, I mean, I've seen plenty of these fucking girls that hold box cutters. I've seen that. I've you know, had a girl pull my fucking uh, keys out of the ignition asking for money. Oh, one time a tranny stole my glasses. I was fucking riding around looking at trannies on, uh, in the meatpacking district, and I stopped. And I just wasn't buying. I just kept looking. So uh, this one, this is when I lived in Jersey with my parents. I was like 28, and this fucking transsexual walked over and just took my glasses off. And she's like, for wasting my time. And uh, I'm, st- I'm sitting there in fucking 15th Street in New York with no glasses, and cops drove by, and I literally can see 20 feet in front of me without my glasses. Yeah. So I had to flash my high beams and flag the police down, yeah. and I'm like, that, that, that person took my glasses, yeah. and they're like, you know, it's a transsexual. I'm like, really? I didn't, and I depend on I know. And uh, the cops went over, and they're like, just give him his glasses back. So the fucking tranny gave my glasses back. But it's like, this is humiliating shit like that. But I'm a grown-up. That's the humiliating part, not the tranny part? How do you, no. how do you accommodate the idea of, of, of trannies? Oh, come on. What am I, you know, what am I, judgmental? Come on, <laughs> please. They, they give wonderful blowjobs. They're good people. Everybody knows that. <laughs> so there was never, on your first tranny, there was never the issue of, uh, this is kind of gay. Nah, or please. Really? Nah, it's open-minded. <laughs> I'm a free thinker, man. <laughs> is, that a, is that a regular thing? No, um, but it's like, you know, when you're a complete addict, look, if you, if you only drink vodka, yeah. Life gets boring, so you yeah. have to drink fucking, you know, you have to drink a little Seagram's, you have to drink a little bit of this, you have to drink a little bit of whiskey, come on, it right. is what it is. What is the other things? Like, what's the pee thing? Explain uh, to me the pee thing. That was one of my first turn-ons as a child. I can remember uh, being a kid, and there was there was a brother and sister. They were, uh, uh, I, I, this is, I was either in first or second grade, so I lived in Edison, New Jersey. Uh-huh. And uh, a brother and sister, he was my age, she was a year older. And I would get them both at different times. I would lay behind the shrubs and convince them to sit on my face because they both had pissed their pants a lot. Yeah. So I would just breathe in the urine yeah. smell through their pants. But uh, that was one of my first turn-ons as a kid was the smell of piss. You don't know, where, that's, you don't know why nah, or where it's it It's animal on some level. Yeah. I, mean, I mean, we're probably supposed to be turned on by it when you yeah. look at it. I mean, animals mark territory. It, it's right. used for something. Right. But it would turn me on. And I forget the first girl, one girl I dated used to piss her panties for me. She, I, I was like in my mid-twenties. Yeah. So I would tell her I wanted to smell it and just fucking lick her pussy yeah. after she would piss her panties. Yeah. And uh, I'm not into cross-dressing, but I did, one time it was the dirtiest thing I, I had done to that point. Yeah. I, she pissed her panties for me, and then um, she asked me to put them on, and I did, and, uh, and she kind of blew me through her own piss panties. Yeah. And uh, I know that was like, that probably has really ruined her since then, but to me it was just the start of really enjoying piss. Now, so that was in high school? That, oh, I was in my mid-twenties when I really, that was, I think the first time I'd experienced it actual, the actual, actually doing it and, and, and you know, and being having piss on me uh, and then I just had girls do it on me or I would drink it whatever you know yeah I used to have her piss in a cup. Yes, this is a girl. I would have her piss in a cup, yeah. and then I would try to get her to make me drink it. Um, she was going to college at the time, and I was again mid twenties. And I would actually have her tip my the cup into my mouth like she was forcing me to drink her piss. Do you think that at some point your you know your your desires and uh, you know in terms of doing comedy was somehow to make it okay and to and to uh, own it and to overcome any shame about it? I don't know if that's why I did comedy. I mean, I, to me. Uh, Did you feel at every at any point where it's like you know I'm fucked up? Oh yeah, I've always felt complete. Of course, always fucked up. And to me, the fact like the thing that makes it less. Do you think fucked you up, are fucked up? I know I am. Yeah, yeah. It's not normal, <laughs> dude. It's not normal. You know what I mean? Normal yeah. people don't do that. But he- what is normal? I mean, that's it. But that's the issue, and that's the defense of like you know uh, the the transgender community, the the uh, you know the you know, the transsexual community, even the gay community at the beginning was about the fact that there is no normal, and who are you to fucking judge? Well, normal to me, normal is not a judgment. Normal just says. It's the norm. It's the common. Right. Um, but we're not like that anyways, as people in, in, in our lives right. yeah. at all. But I don't judge. It is, for me to like piss, it is abnormal. But I don't judge it as terrible. You know what I mean? Yeah. Being gay is abnormal only in the sense of the majority of people are not gay. Right. Doesn't mean it's wrong. Doesn't make it any more right to be this way. Right. So I don't judge what I consider abnormal. It's just not the common. 
So uh, most people look. It's what, what can you maintain an erection through? Um, you know what I mean. If a girl tells me she loves me while I'm fucking her, my dick it just it wilts like somebody threw fucking hot water on it. <laughs> I can't keep a heart on through that. It does nothing for me, uh, unless she's a prostitute. If a prostitute says I love you, but, I'll come immediately. But does that concern you? Do you find that you have love in your life? Are you capable of it? I am, yeah. But it's you know it's the I, it's embarrassing to be so trapped in the Madonna whore thing. But it's very hard for me to to combine the things. It's very hard for me to love the same person. Who I who, and I want to smell their armpits, or I right. want to, you know. Right. And to me, none of it's shock. I don't talk about it to be shocking. Yeah. I'm annoyed when people are shocked by it. Like I, I want them to enjoy the honesty of it and laugh at it, but I never want them to be shocked because to me, it's stuff that a lot of them do anyway. It's like, come on, we're not really breaking ground here. Right. I'm not a kid fucker. I don't like it. To me, those those are things that go into to levels where you should be judged and treated horribly. You right. Know, I you, think I I agree with you uh, on that, and I think that when people uh, you know put you in a, a category of shock comedy, I think they're misunderstanding the comic character and the level of self deprecation that y you are capable of. I mean, the the self deprecating comic has always been something, and and I think that that format. You know, in the 70s was always Jewish and self-pitying sure. and like, poor me. And that shit is over. Yeah. But I think that for people to dismiss you as a shock comic, they, they misunderstand the comedy character and the level and the depth of self-deprecation that's available. Yeah, I just try to tell the truth. And I'm not always right. I think most of us bat about 500. We're right half the time, wrong half the time. Wrong how, though? What do you mean, what's Meaning, wrong? Meaning, whatever we, we whether, like, whether we're talking about the war, we're talking about health care, or any real issues... When I, half the time people will agree with you, half the times they won't. Half the times I'll be point on, and half the times 10 years from now I could be proven wrong. It doesn't matter. As long as I'm truthful about the way I feel about it. You know, a lot of guys... Like, Are you willing to be contrite if you're proven wrong? Sure, I'll talk about things I wish that I had thought of differently. Sure, because everybody... Anyone who's so married to... Uh, an ideology yeah. that their opinions about things won't change just because it doesn't go hand in hand with the ideology are fraudulent anyway. And they're, they're ignorant. They're very ignorant and they're obsessed with being right. And to me, that's where comedians go wrong and get boring is when they become obsessed with being right. It's like, be right as much as you can, but always be funny because that's what gives us the right to stand in front of a room full of people and give our opinions is that we have opinions and we're funny with them. Right. That's what separates us from them. Right. Well, we can make them funny. Well, before we get to the politics and race, and because uh, you know, I, I do want to address my own discomfort uh, with with moments I've had, you know, in your presence. <laughs> uh, there, there was never any uh, risk of you being normal. I, I could tell. <laughs> I could just tell by the way you 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 know you, you're, you the way you talk and the and your energy that, and you always wear you know usually a black Sabbath shirt yeah. of some kind. Sure. Now, I'm trying to picture what your situation was, you know, let's say, you know, starting in like seventh grade when he started to come into your own, you know, as a, you know, not as a comic, but as a person. Were you a freak? I was, uh, no, I was funny. And that was the only thing that made me feel, you know, how the so only thing. So you had thing. a free uh, pass to, to, to travel anywhere in high school because of your sense of humor. Yeah, because even the big dumb jocks were afraid of being embarrassed. Right. And they knew you could do to them what they couldn't do to you. You could humiliate them verbally. Right. And that's why they were nice to me. But I had cowlicks. I had really embarrassing... My, my whole hair was horribly cowlicked. Like, I had a McDonald's M in the front. Like, and it, it, it would, like I couldn't get it over my forehead. My hair was a source Did of... your mother do that? No, it was just, you know, the gift of being a Norton. It was like, we have cowlicky, horrible hair. Oh, I see your hairline now. So you shave it all off now. Yeah, that's why that. I do it. But it was really the... So I forget how... Because you have hair. You're one of the few people that shaves their head, and you have hair. Full head. <laughs> Full head. But it cowlicks, and it was a source of humiliation, and my hair was always greasy, and uh, I was kind of a grub. I was a virgin until I was 18, you know? I yeah, was me very, too, 17. Yeah, it was... Uh, yeah. First couple school, times were not good. No, not at all. <laughs> high school was a source of complete torture. And you get along with your folks? I do. They're nice people. My father's in recovery, uh, alcohol since 1970. You got uh, like, how many sober? You do like 20 years. Sober. I have uh, February 1st of 87. So, uh, and I, uh, yeah, about 23 years. Um, it's 18, I was 18 when I got sober. Yeah. And, uh, you know, it helped that my father's in, you know... A program too yeah. that he was sober too, <clears throat> but uh, yeah, I was it, I was very very awkward in school and uh, you know just trying to just trying to be funny was the only way I got people to know. Do they like you know? what you do? They love it. They love it. You know, I'm not suicidal anymore. I don't drink and do drugs. I don't black out. They're just happy that I'm alive and pursuing what I love. They're very supportive. I have great parents. When were you suicidal? When I was uh, using, I was a cutter when I drank. You yeah, know, I was a bad cutter. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, we, but was it real suicide attempts? Nah, most of it was suburban melodrama. Notice me. No sexual abuse? Um, no, and I show all the signs of it. 
I show. I asked my mother. That's why I asked. Yeah, I, I asked my mother, and she said that she actually went in the other direction and was overprotective of me. Uh-huh. She kept me away from anybody who might be. But I show all the signs. I mean, I had. I moved to edit to North Brunswick from Edison in Halloween of fourth grade, which is October of fourth grade, and I can count ten sexual partners before that move. Um, all of them, I'd say, almost all of them boys. A couple of girls. Oral sex. Um, I re- vaguely remember someone trying to fuck me in the ass, but I think they were my age. Right. So it was never. I don't count it as abuse because it was consensual between kids. Yeah. I didn't even get erections to that age. Yeah. I didn't know what they were. Right. My friend Sean got hard ons. Like he would blow me, and I wouldn't get an erection, and I would do him, and uh, he would get an erection. I had no idea why his penis did that. It was just something that you thought, like, okay, let's do that. It felt good, and it was secretive. Right. And we loved the secretive nature of it. Yeah. And girls scared me. Um, because they had something different than me. Yeah, uh, seemed complicated. Yeah, the <laughs> fucking heart. I kicked a girl in the pussy when I was a kid named Sue. Oh, she stole my tire. I was I was rolling a big car tire, and she took it because she was like one of the dikey girls in the neighborhood. And I kicked her right in the crotch, and she bled. Um, and I think that fucked me up with the vagina for a while. It really, I'd never forget her. You saw it as a wound? She might have just pissed, uh-huh. but I know there was, there was wet in the front of her pants. Uh-huh. And it just, that whole area became horrifying for me. Huh. Wow. Yeah. So it, that, uh, and, and then like, when did you like first, uh, how were the first couple sexual experiences? Awkward. I was drunk. Um, I used to wear hats because of my hair insecurity. You know, I went through that white kid who loves a hip hop phase before it was fashionable. You know, it was like Adidas with fat laces. Yeah. And, oh, really? Oh, I was a humiliating when did, asshole. When did the Black Sabbath thing start? I've always loved them, but then, you know, again, when you're looking you for an identity, sure, sure. You, you know, as a KISS fan since childhood, you, 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 know, you start looking for these other identities. That's an interesting thing, and I've not talked about that with other comics, because I'm the same way. If, if I even look at my history on Conan O'Brien and the outfits I've done and the number of glasses I've worn and the hair, yeah. and when I was a kid, that, that search for identity, I don't know if that's common among us, but I share that with you. Yeah, I think so. I think we all have that, like... Uh, what's going to make me unique and memorable? Instead of realizing, like maturity teaches, because you're afraid. Yes, terrified. I, and somebody once told me that, don't worry about finding who you are. Get rid of all the shit you're not, and whoever you are shows up. And that made a lot of sense to me. It was like I didn't need to go externally and oh, a Kango. Was that a sober thing? Yes, it was a sober guy. See, that told because me that. I'm just really sort of like literally, and I, I'm a little ashamed to admit it. I'm just feeling that now, that that like you know that I, I am who I am, and it's enough. Yeah. You know, because it's so, when you have that insecure brain, when you have that fear, you're constantly judging yourself against other people. Yeah. You constantly don't think you're good enough. Yeah. And you're always like, you know, wondering what do I got to do to feel better and to feel accepted and to feel good enough. And you, you go the gamut of that shit. Well, to me, it's, it's what makes us original as comedians or as people is our own. And, and I hate to say it, not to be melodramatic, but whatever an, a person's truth is, whatever their life is, to me, what makes, I love listening to you when you come on the show because I know exactly where you are in life because you're going to tell me yeah. and you're going to make it funny. And to me, that's what makes you a great comedian is the fact that you talk about your life. Uh, Colin described it really well as uh, what he hated was... Uh, ironic distance that a lot of guys go through where they think it's hip to show no emotion and be detached and fuck you i like a guy who really tells me what their life is like or their genuine opinions about things right. without feeling preached at you know that's what i that's admire. right yeah, and i think that's uh you know you're talking about colin quinn for those of you who are listening but um I, I think that's a good point, and I think that a lot of that detachment is really just by virtue of, of immaturity yeah, maybe, and, yeah. and, and a certain amount of fear, because what I'm starting to realize, I sit in a comedy club, and, and they become interchangeable. You know, no one's taking any risks you know, other than saying you know, you know, vagina or yeah. the N-word, and no one's really doing anything you know, to show who they are, so they right. have no point of view, and I've grown to believe it's just that they don't have any life experience. Yep. You know, there's like, you know, the type of comics we are, there are guys like us, where you know, we've, we've risked our lives to do this but we've also risked our lives in other ways right. because we got no choice yeah we just live a fucked up life and that's what we live but a lot of these kids are well adjusted i don't there's a whole generation of comics that are well adjusted so to compensate for the fact that they're not out of their fucking minds they just say shocking things and they don't invest uh, anything in it and a lot of them try to create angst and try to create the things that they find interesting in comedians they try to create those things in themselves because they think that will make them interesting and it's like uh in new york you see a lot of guys who try to be david tell and it tell it's easy to spot because dave is such a specific guy and dave is such an original so when you see a young comic going mm, blow jaw 
oh, I know who you watched a little too much. You know, you see guys looking for that identity. But how is that different than like I don't I don't take comics to task for that as long as they grow through it because sure. that's no right, different right, right. than any than you wearing the hat. Absolutely. You know? But, you know, and sometimes some guys are infectious. I mean, I, I couldn't watch Bill Hicks when I knew him because, you know, you're going to, you know, everyone has influences. But it's the guys that lock into the Mitch style or the Todd style yeah. or the uh, or the Attell style. Right. Those seem to be the big three delivery yeah. systems sure. that are, are like sort of subconsciously appropriated. Yep. Whereas you, you know, the one thing I, that, that's interesting about you is that your timing is completely stilted to you. That you actually, your rhythm is not something anybody can take because it's 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 frenetic and it's impulsive and it's unique to you. So no one's going to be able to do Norton. Right, right, right. But that's good. Yeah, thank you. Uh, who were that when you were younger? I mean, I I know that you have this fetish almost of of taking pictures of yourself. I with do every fucking celebrities. Yes. What is that? I didn't do it for a long time, and then I met Pryor. And I, he was my idol, so I got an autograph. I always regret not taking a photo, but I am happy that I got an autograph. I got him to sign my business card. It was like child's handwriting. And we talked about it. he was sick. Very sick. Yeah, he had uh, yeah. MS at the time. So I was lucky he was able. He signed two autographs that night, and he's like, no more. And his wife was there. I'm like, look, I'm a comedian from the East Coast. Could you ask him? Because I'll never meet him again. And yeah. she's like, Richard, one more. So he signed for me. And Kinnison I met one time, and he signed a napkin. And I was always grateful that I got something from those guys. And with the photos... It became something I started to do. Like, Ozzy was one of the first photos I took. I'm like, if I was with Jim Florentine, we met Ozzy. He's like, get a, get a picture. So I was like, oh, yeah, I should get one. Right. And then it became addictive. And I noticed that sometimes I got good stories out of it. Sometimes I didn't. But it just became this fun thing. So I feel sorry for myself. Like, oh, you know, your life is not this. And it's like, you fucking cunt, shut up. You fucking, look what you're doing. Yeah. You're meeting your idols. Yeah. You're having fun. You get, it's like, shut your fucking mouth. It became a way. That's how you talk to yourself. I it like really that. was. It's yeah. the only way I listen. It was like, it was like a visual slap to my fucking spoiled face. It's like, you're one of the lucky ones, man. Yeah. Most people who should be sober are dead. I can't tell you how many guys I got high with that are either, either they're, they're dead now from drinking and drugging. They had heart attacks or how many people I got sober with that died of AIDS because they had shot up before, you know, uh, AIDS was known as much. It's like, you lucky little fuck, shut your mouth. Yeah. I get so mad at myself for that fucking sense of entitlement or I deserve more, I should have more. And to me, that is a way of looking and going, look at what a fun life you have, man. Yeah. It's fucking fun what you do. Yeah, it's great. And I, I appreciate that about you. You're one of the few people I'm not jealous of, and I really am happy that you're having success in Thank your you, life. man. Thank you. It's mutual. <laughs> Thanks. I'm working on it. I'm working on my garage, but I'm a man. <laughs> <laughs> but who do you see yourself as a, a legacy of? For some reason, I, you know, I think it might just be because of of your frenetic disposition. You know, I, I can see truth tellers. I can see Pryor. I can see Kennison. But I, I can also see a little Rickles, a little Rodney Dangerfield. Is that possible? It's funny. Rickles is the one I've gotten compared to. And I've, I never, I think I heard Hello Dummy recently for the first time. I oh, never yeah. studied Rick. I mean, I watched CPR Sharky when I was a kid. And yeah, he'd be on Letterman sometimes or the, or the Tonight Show. But I never really, Pryor was the guy I watched. Yeah, me I mean, too. it was yeah. Pryor. Um, Rodney, when he's on the Tonight Show, I would take. Yeah. I was a huge Robert Klein fan. I think he's one of the greatest ever. Woody, yeah. the Nightclub Years, sure. yeah, yeah. might be the best Great three record. records that ever released. Yeah. Um, but prior for me was the guy. I mean, because of the truth, loved, and he never made you feel guilty. Vulnerability. Ah, uh, he was. He was. That's what people miss. He wasn't an angry black man. No, he was showing you a wounded black man, a hurt fucking guy. Yeah, you watch some of those. Like I watched some of them recently, and the things he talks about are very, you know, interesting as a man because, you you know, like he gets misunderstood and misrepresented by black comics now yes. and also about uh, by people who don't really assess what he did. But, you know, that whole bit about running away, you know, when you're with your girlfriend. Yes. And, I mean, that is not masculinity. Right. And the stuff he talks about sex, about, you know, uh, mm -hmm. you know, when he's on coke. I mean, you know, these are very unique, vulnerable positions. And that's what made him great. Yep. And I, and I think that you do that as well. So now let's talk about politics. I think the only problem that we ever had was really in, during 9-11. And, mm -hmm. you know, then, you know, I was obviously, you know, the lone lefty at the table at the <laughs> comedy cellar who refused to, uh, to acknowledge the idea of uh, internment of all Arab citizens in this country as a reasonable response to 9-11. And, and it was at that point where I think you and I, if we had any contention, it was over the, the politics of sure. race. Now, where do you stand on that now? Um, um, profiling specifically. Uh, profiling, I completely think it's, it's accurate and it works. Um, I think it's it's an unpopular thing to say, but uh, when you're looking for, for the mafia, when you're trying to clean up the mob, you want to clean up the Fulton Street fish market, you don't go to 145th and look at black guys. 
You go. You don't look at Italians. Um, and the re- you want to look. Yeah, but ter- you look at Italians who have a history of crime and who have been uh, you're surveilled and wiretapped, have associations with sure. other mobsters, sure. probably the drug trade or the construction sure. business. Sure, I mean yeah, that's yeah, different than every black person. But I don't think every black person should be profiled. Uh, what I'm what I'm saying is, you go for Italians. You know the ethnicity you're going through. Uh, going for it. Then you can narrow it down specifically. When you want to okay. go for the mob, you want to go for the Westies, you're looking at the Irish. Then you narrow it down. You want to go for the Jamaican drug gangs. Uh, if you look at the Crips and Bloods, you're looking at black guys. You narrow it down. Okay, okay well, right. he's between 18 and 35. Okay. So it's almost like people are very comfortable with their ethnicity being used when it's positive. Like you've never seen anybody say, look at all these Italians marching for Columbus, feeling good just because they're associated with an ethnicity. That's acceptable. But if it's negative, then all of a sudden it's unacceptable. It's like people want it both ways. They want to be lumped in with the accomplishments of another person of their group if it's positive, but they do not want to be lumped in with that group if the association is negative. So to me, it's it, it's just a matter of, uh, it, it's phony. It's like you, you can't have it both ways. If, if you want to be lumped in on a positive, then you got to be lumped in on a negative. You know what I mean? Like Americans, we feel good if our country wins the America's Cup, whatever the fuck it is. That's okay. But if you lump a, you with negatively something a country does, that's bad. It's right. Like, why not just accept or they, it or both they don't, ways? Right, or they deny it. But I think you have to do it with dignity. And I don't think that all Muslims or Arabs should be mistreated either because the majority of them, and I mean, I'm not saying this to be polite, the majority of them are good citizens. And the majority of them were repulsed by what went on. The scary part is, I don't know if we've ever faced this situation before. How do you deal with uh, a group that does assimilate into the population and does use the fact that they're allowed to assimilate the population to attack you. It's, it's just, it's a hard one to deal with. Well, you do it in the same way, like you said, with the mob, through police work, yep. uh, you know, feet on the ground. Agreed. Local police work, yes. surveillance, uh, investigations, you know, it, it, that, so you, I, in a sense, this is one of those situations where your, your opinion uh, has evolved. Because I think, not unlike everybody else, the, the reaction to 9-11 was, was, was uh, uh, no one could understand, you know, the anger and, and, and sure. the fear and the frustration. So we were all talking in a certain way. But it seems to me that you've evolved on this. But I, Yes, but I still do agree with profiling because I think it works. Uh, profiling with a means to in, of intent, with a reason. Well, all, yeah, always. But I never felt that you shouldn't have any, like, I never felt that a, a, a 40-year-old Arabic woman was as likely as a 21-year-old Arabic male. Not impossible, but when the airport does this, and again, I know that there are, you can't always tell. I understand that. But when you see a, a, a 58-year-old Chinese lady being stopped and a Middle Eastern guy going through, there is not one person who's being honest that can say they are as comfortable with him on the plane as they are at that old Asian lady. Well, I tell you, in, in all honesty, this is like something, you know, in dealing with the type of comedy you do and, and doing the O&A show and, and trying to assess this stuff for myself because I'm naturally a reactionary person. Sure. I'm going to go to the left. And I, I am too, almost to the other way. Right. Uh, but but not but not morally, not with uh, social issues, no, not with homosexuality not or not sexuality. No. But, yeah, but I want to be a liberal. I really do. No, I think I think you that all of us comics on on First Amendment issues are liberals. Yes. That that one of the fights that Lenny Bruce did, that one of the fights that comics did, was to free the language. And I think that all comics are liberal in that area. That it, but that is not the part and that's not the parlance of of liberalism at this point in time. There's other issues. But I think like on gay marriage, on on language, on political correctness. You know, I'm with you on that. Like I still believe by the First Amendment rights. We, that were fought that language should never be questioned absolutely yeah. so i i think there are meeting places uh you know but but in in terms of race one of the things that i i learned from you was that that essentially that if your heart's in the right place and and you're going to to use language uh that you have to trust yourself and that you know in, in the sense that you know political correctness in, in most conditions in most cases you know, outside of the workplace, it can be bullshit and can be censorship and, and, and can be yes. used to uh, to actually hinder the conversation between I, races. I find the most politically correct people are being, and, and again, they're not being viciously dishonest. But to me, uh, political correctness is, is in a way based in paternalism. And it's also people who are really overly PC are afraid of being exposed. I've never really met a PC person that had a lot of black friends or that had really honest conversations back and forth. They'd still cross the street if there were three black guys coming towards them, but they wouldn't even admit to themselves, like, wow, those three black guys make me a little uncomfortable. 
and uh, the black guys know it. You know, just at least respect them as much as men if you sit down and talk with them to tell them what happened. Um, that's but, right. And, and that's something I think I learned from from hanging out, from doing tough crowd. Sure. And from, you know, because I don't have many friends in general. But <laughs> but you know, but as comedians, you know, we work with guys sure. with Patrice and Keith and, yeah. and you know, and, and black comics. I never think about race in that way. Right. You know, we, you know, I know in my heart that, you know, racial identification, that the black community has a, a way of 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 being that is specifically theirs and 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 they're proud of it and that's the way it is so you know when you talk about like stereotypes if they're not used angrily and they're used as a matter of fact they do exist and it's not a generalization but that's one of the things that separates us and makes us interesting not separates us and makes us hate each other and we've gotten into this thing where the only people that can be called out for their horseshit is white people and believe me there's a lot of it but it's like no white people are comfortable calling out black people on their shit it was like where liberals really bothered me it was when i got fired because again, I do radio too, so it's like I watched. We almost got dumped for something very similar. We got suspended for a month on satellite. When I watched him get fired for that, and I watched nobody for the girls' basketball team, nappy-headed hose. Yeah, and everybody knew that the joke was he was the old white guy using a younger black expression. It's an, almost like when you see an the idiom. Old, yeah, the old white lady dancing to hip hop. It's fish out of water type right, shit. Right, right, right. And uh, somebody else said, uh, one of these guys said the uh, the wannabes and the jigaboos, which was a direct reference to school days from Spike Lee. Everybody knew that was the intent of the joke. Um, it didn't matter. It was a feeding frenzy. And nobody, not one liberal, I mean, there may have been somebody, I didn't see them, fucking Media Matters targeted him. None of them stuck up for him. And fuck rappers too. Because all of them, the, the ones who got killed on censorship, turned into a bunch of suburban white ladies and wanted him thrown off the air. You know, and I talked about it on, on, on the special. It was I, I, Snoop even was saying that he should be fired for disrespecting black women. Snoop, who, who has a pimp mentality. Yeah. The, the phoning is coming out of right. the black community on that. That fake outrage drives me nuts. And this is a language issue. This is a, a First Amendment issue in some yes, respects. Sure it is. That, that, you know, that you're being censored for the language. And it's a censorship. It's a grassroots censorship. It's not a government-enforced censorship, right. but that's the way that works. I understand that. And, and the thing that, that's interesting to me about the, the dialogue is that in what you were saying before, I, I have a joke that I do now that you know, I say everybody's a little racist. Sure. And, the, and the people that are the most racist are when you ask them, they say, I'm not a racist. Right. With that tone, because clearly you've interrupted an argument they're having yeah, with themselves. Yeah, absolutely. Great way to say it. Yeah, <laughs> you really have. And uh, I think we all have the right. And if you don't think we're polarized as a country, the OJ verdict, you could not have had anything that split the country down the middle. Black people weren't surprised by white reaction. White people were shocked by black reaction. They, How could you not? You know, because they thought they were cheering for a murderer, which is not what it was, but it was what it was seen at, you know. Right. It was, I think it was, my opinion is it was more blacks going, you see how it feels? Right. When you know he's guilty and he gets off, you see? I, I think it was more of that. But, you know, to not address race, honestly, uh, I'm one of those people, I hold everybody to the same standards that I want to be held to. I have never wanted a comedian or anybody penalized ever for something they said in humor. Never. If you, look, if you violate the FCC, if you're on the radio and you say fuck, you gotta be fired. But that goes across the board. That's black, white, Hispanic. Anybody who says it on the radio is right. fired. But when it comes down to social stuff like this, it's very arbitrary, and so therefore it, it, it's phony. Well, I got to be honest with you. Sometimes when I do O and A, and and the, the jokes start, yeah, you know that there's a there's there's something you know there's a, a, a something that that happens in there around black. Sure. With with Anthony. Yeah. And 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 that you know I get uncomfortable. Really? Uh, sometimes. <laughs> <laughs> because, you know, I, I'm not, you know, I'm not used to, you know, the, the type of, because I think that on some level, even though Patrice is in and Keith is in yeah. and, and you got, uh, you know, black guys in there, you know, playing along and defending sure. the turf that, that, that somehow or another, I, I get concerned about how it's interpreted and, and whose brain you're feeding with that shit. Cause I, I don't, I, I get a sense sometimes that I get concerned with people that really do hate blacks and that you're going to feed that, that sentiment. See, I never ever think of that only because it's the same thing. I hold other people as accountable as I want to be held and I'm responsible for my own thinking. So I never give myself that much credit, meaning I'm not going to get credit for good shit. That's why I never believe the parents' argument. Well, my children, I don't give a fuck about your kids because if they get A's in school, you're not going to give me credit. So if they give F's, 
don't pass me the blame. You understand that, like, you know, if, if the kid gets A's, the parents are like, well, it's because we're great parents. But if the kid gets F's, they want to blame television, they want to blame video games. Bullshit. It's like, it's like the same thing with ethnicity. They want to be lumped in for the positive, but not the negative. What's well, the same thing it is with, with, with stuff like this? I don't believe in feeding peoples. There's no joke I'm going to make that's going to take a person who is very neutral and make them dislike black people. And unfortunately, there's no joke I'm going to make that's going to take a real racist and make him not a racist. And when you have guys like Patrice and, and Keith, it, it, you can't get two blacker guys, meaning Keith and Patrice are as unphony as you can be about race. Yeah. Uh, they're brutally honest, and they never care who they're offending, and they never care about being polite or appeasing. And uh, so guys like that, when you interact with guys like that, you get very comfortable talking about it. Um, because I so you're saying that in the room, because of the yeah, that, if if Patrice and Keith were not on the show, or that 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 black people didn't have a voice on the show, then it would be wrong in in your model, in, in the sense that you know they do have an opportunity. Of course. Yeah, they do have an opportunity. Everybody does. Right, but it, it is enabled in the show, without I'm, a doubt. That I'm saying that if there was no blacks ever on the show, then it would be dubious. If we kept blacks off because we were afraid of them hearing our opinions then we're phonies. But uh, there's nothing that gets said in that room. There's no jokes that go out over the mic that wouldn't go out if Patrice was sitting right there. And we have regular blacklisters, hardcore guys that will call in. Sometimes they agree with us. Sometimes they fucking want to shoot us. But, you know, they love us because we're, they always say you're white guys who at least speak like white guys and tell the truth. And uh, sometimes it's funny. Other times it's tasteless. But that's the same as black radio. It's the same as Spanish radio. It's the same as everybody. We're not doing anything earth-shattering. We're just being funny. I, I, I guess the, that historically, when you talk about patriarchy or you talk about, uh, you know, manifest destiny and, and white supremacy, that I think that the models are built on this white entitlement. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, and, and that I think that the argument becomes more about that, that, you know, the dominant race is, is, is you know, is, is still shitting on the lesser races in their minds that they're lesser. But, but what's happening now is that it's no longer balanced like that. And that the honesty is is buffered by the fact that there is racial identity in all these other communities and that the dialogue is more exciting and more engaged. What happens is, and this is where when Imus is getting fired or if you say black instead of African-American or God forbid uh, you say anything that is deemed racist, other white people attack you. And what that is, is that is the ruling class. That's true paternalism. That's the ruling class spanking themselves and holding themselves more accountable than they hold the group they deem to be the lesser. That's what drives me nuts. But, but do you believe that at this point in history there is a, a, a rabid and, and disturbing uh, uh, racist contingent you know, within this country that is, is picking up momentum and that as a reaction to a black president has, has become empowered? No, um, my take on the Tea Party, I've never been to a Tea Party thing. I don't get involved in any of that shit. Yeah, no, I But I, I really do either. think that the charge of racism, it's, it's amazing. It's a bunch of people who are, are protesting higher taxes. And if you remember JFK, there were charges of treason by, by radical right groups. And, you know, it's just, it's an attack made on liberals by people when they don't like liberals, communists, So you're socialist. saying that the racist contingent is just the same as it's always been. It's, it's, it's not a part of this one. It's amazing how the media hmm. mocked these Tea Party protesters. And yet they don't mock Code Pink. They don't mock really radical groups. They don't mock uh, the Gay Pride Parade or any of these protesters. They don't mock any of the, uh, the Latin protesters. They don't mock any of them. They handle them with kid gloves and reverence, and yet the Tea Partiers who are protesting basically taxes, whether you agree or disagree. Well, there's or elements. There's other elements within there. You know, there've been there ones that say that Obama's the Antichrist. Or, I mean, they're, they're How trying. Come, why didn't the media mock Farrakhan and the Million Man March, where there was a lot of radic uh, uh You don't think it did? No, absolutely not. I've never heard the media mock. And do you Farrakhan. think that is by that? That's again the white entitlement and the white guilt and the yes, because you're holding. People who hold black people to a different speech standard than they hold themselves are paternalistic and racist. I hold people to the same standards I want to be held as. You and I should both be able to say the same thing. I mean, that's a real simple concept. But anytime I put myself in a position where I have to edit, but it's okay if you don't, then I am the parent and you are the child. And that drives me crazy. And it's, it, it's a sickness. It's people don't even see they're being racist. And I, I, nothing I say... I would say on D.L. Hughley's show, I would say on, I'm completely comfortable 
talking about this. I don't edit when I'm talking to black people. If I disagree with them about something, I say I disagree. And they tell me the same thing. It's a real simple thing. Have you ever censored yourself ever for whatever reason? Um, Where you knew you were doing it? If I'm on stage and I was going to do a Christopher Reeve joke and there's a guy in the front and he's obviously paralyzed, I wouldn't. I mean, I do have some social grace where I'm not a fucking monster. <laughs> do, you, do you know what I mean? Or if I see a retarded guy in the front, I don't think I'm an artist if I go, hey, Down syndrome. Ah. Yeah. You know what I mean? To me, it doesn't yeah. mean I can't have compassion or common sense. I mean, again, I still understand social interactions. So sure, I've edited. Everybody has. But I mean, as a rule, as a rule, uh, especially talking on the air for all those hours, I try hard just to be truthful, because to me, if I'm not truthful, then I'm fucking, I'm a, the nerve of me to demand truth from other people and then fucking lie. But I think that the important part of that conversation, I'm the same way, is I think the, 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 the thing that makes a difference between someone, you know, telling the truth uh, and, and just being righteous is the fact that it's an ongoing conversation. Absolutely. And when you're telling the truth, you have to understand you're going to be wrong sometimes. And to me, somebody being righteous is, is again, agenda-driven and boring. Telling the truth, and there's always that asterisk, as I see it, because that's the way it is for all of us. And again, sometimes I'm right, sometimes I'm wrong. In my experience. Yes. And uh, when I'm right, I'm right. When I'm wrong, I'm wrong. So what? As long as I'm truthful. Yeah. You know what I mean? Because again, everybody bats about 500 as far as I can see. I've never met a comedian who was always right, and I've never met a comedian that never got it right. Yeah. You know what I mean? There's plenty of, I I just, I want to be a liberal for real, because I agree with 80% of the things that liberals stand for, but that language shit. And we interviewed Carlin before he died. I wanted to hug him for this. Even he said it. He goes, I hate to say it, man, but the most censorship lately has been coming off of college campuses. That's where the censorship is now. And I was so happy to hear it confirmed by a guy who knew more about the language than any of us and who spent a a longer time fighting language policing than any of us. You know, you've done colleges, man. You can't attack... You know, if you attack Christianity, you make fun of the church, it's cool. But if you attack Islam, it's not that they care about Islam, it's that they're afraid of it. Well, I think that's true. And I think that because of, of certain, you know, uh, lack of experience and the youth and the, and the paranoia yeah. of, of being appropriate or inappropriate and not really knowing what their opinions really are yet, right. that can lead to, to a, a future for them as self-censoring people. Right. And, and, and I think that's dangerous. And, and the good thing about you is that it's truthful and always funny. Thank you, man. I try to be funny. It's like, to me, I've actually called myself, if I say something for, really, I, I try to get to the jokes quickly and, and on stage when I'm talking about this stuff because otherwise it's boring. Like, as, as, you know, two friends talking is one thing, but in front of an audience, I don't have the right, I really don't, to sit there and just give my, who gives a fuck? Really? <laughs> who gives a shit? The self-importance the prior got to the jokes. Yeah, Jesus. I've been that guy. I've been self-important. We've all had those, you know. You know what I'm saying? But I, yeah, think yeah. I, I can step out and realize, and I've and, and crowds love it. And you call yourself out on it; they love it. Well, I think that what's great in 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 terms of what you're doing and what I do as well is it's involuntary, but we are challenging people. Yeah, and that the comedy we do is challenging, and that makes us specific, but it also makes us unique, and we can't help but be that. You know what's funny is the way people, a lot of comedians avoid certain issues as comics. And our job, to me at least, is to take your knuckle. It's like, you know, it's like when you're massaging and you get that knot. And it's to, to, to put your knuckle in those social knots. That's what our job is. And there are guys that just completely sidestep it and avoid it. And I'm talking about guys that will consider themselves talking about social issues. Sure. You know what I mean? A yeah. guy like Dimitri Martin's a little bit different. He's a guy who has who's a different style of comic. He's not claiming to be, I'm going to talk about rape. You know what I mean? Yeah, so yeah, it's yeah. like, I, I think he's great at what he does. Right. But guys that are up there talking about social issues and doing the same phony you know, fucking cornball maverick routine. It's like, what well, you yeah. we get it. Yeah. We get it. White suburban people. Are, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Come on, you're never going to get penalized for that shit. Come on, <laughs> stop it. Exactly. And they take that shit into a black room and they bomb. Right. Black people don't like that. Black people don't like some fucking hip white kid, you know, sitting there trying to bond. Yeah. Meanwhile, he's lived in the suburbs his whole life. Right. And he has no real experience. No. Well, shit, Jim. Thanks for talking. Jim, I'm sorry I babbled, but it's, uh, I love no, you, man. I appreciate do. you having me on. I love you, too, and I'm glad we uh, had the talk. Thank you, buddy. Well, I hope you enjoyed that. We're certainly mixing it up here at WTF. Uh, I love Jim. I'm, I'm happy he took the time to, uh, to talk to me. Here at the end of the show, I'd like to say, please go to WTFPod.com. Please get on the mailing list, because I'm actually, I'm, I'm, I enjoy writing the mailing list, and you'll get information about... Uh, about our guests 
I'll write a little stuff about me, maybe send some pictures. Also, we're going to be offering some special deals uh, to people on the mailing list and also special deals to people that do uh, a certain premium package. I, you know, I don't lean on this too much, but we are listener-supported here at WTF, and we are working pretty hard for you, and we'd like you to donate. And there's several options. You can donate whatever you want, and, and I certainly appreciate it. You can get on the $10 a month rolling donation, a subscription donation, and with that, you'll get a T-shirt, some stickers, and 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 be a, a, a monthly $10 a month contributor. There's also the super premium donation of $250, a one-time donation. And with that, you get a Nerdcock shirt, a What the Fuck shirt, uh, all three of my comedy CDs, a very special Best of WTF Volume 1 with uh, material on it that has never been on the show, and some stickers. And also, if you do the $250 premium, we're going to have a special uh, gift for you in the very near future. Uh, but as I said, whatever you can afford, uh, I'm glad you like the show. If you can't afford uh, to pay at all or to donate, just enjoy the show. Uh, I'm certainly glad you're here. But do go to WTFpod.com uh, and get on the mailing list at the very least. Get yourself some JustCoffee.coop. Go to PunchlineMagazine.com. Get up to speed on all the comedy news. And go check out Stand Up Records catalog, uh, StandUpRecords.com. Uh, because they are, they, they, he's got great taste over there. He's done my three records, and, and now he's somewhat sponsoring the show. He did help us put out that Best of WTF Volume 1 CD that you do get with the $250 premium. I really appreciate you listening, and uh, it's, a, it's a joy to be doing what I love to do with no one telling me what to do. Thanks. Talk to you next time.